if nothing comes out of this and anybody wants to do it, it's really hard to do. You know, the build community is really hard. But if you wanted to do it, the number one piece of advice I would give anybody trying to do it is spend a lot of time selecting your team. And along those lines, when you select that team, it has to come from the heart. Every member of that team needs to come from the same heart place, you know, because if that differs, you know, if that differs, then all the goals that you set for yourself will always be contentious. So the question is this, how do regenerative-minded changemakers like us, who are creating projects designed for environmental wellness, social equity, and security for future generations, accomplish our missions in ways that maintain our ethics without leaving us struggling to survive? Welcome to Regeneration Nation Costa Rica. I'm your host, Jason Thomas, and I've been exploring innovators around Costa Rica to discover what they're doing to contribute to a regenerative nation. Join me on the journey as we explore who's doing what to usher in a new world that prioritizes regenerative agriculture, business models that value multiple forms of capital and a circular economy, communities designed for local resilience, and government initiatives that prioritize the well-being of the people as well as the planet. Today's interview is with Norman Brooks, a veteran pioneer in community development here in Costa Rica. Norman is commonly known by many around these parts as the father of Stephen Brooks, a well-known permaculturist and community leader in the country. While his backstory gives an impression that Norman's been following in the footsteps of his son's relentless passion and inspiration, the rest of the interview, as well as most of the other conversations I've had with Norman before setting a date to record, reveal him to actually be one of the pillars of practicality and fountains of wisdom that have been instrumental in his co-creator's dreams coming true. In this interview, you'll hear the story of how their three projects, Punta Mona, Alegria, and Ecovia, have evolved one out of the other. You'll hear lessons learned and descriptions of adjustments made in response. We also get into some of the legal and logistical aspects of building community in Costa Rica and how Alegria was designed to make residential lots accessible to locals. One of my favorite takeaways from this interview is Norman's reflection that if your dreams aren't scaring you, you may not be dreaming big enough. Hello and welcome to today where I am sitting with Norman across a digital screen. Norman is in Miami right now. Norman Brooks is one of the founders of Alegria and Ecovia, two eco-villages in Costa Rica. And he is also one of the co-founders of Punta Mona, which is a very popular retreat center and education center over on the Caribbean side. Um, Norman's got almost a few decades in this realm of sustainability and land management. And he has helped to start. He's been part of the foundation of three of some of the, you know, I, I think more established, well-known organizations in the country in this uh, realm. And it's also a few of the organizations that look like they're set up for longevity. And the first of those projects, Punta Mona, is proving itself on those realms. So Norman is a font of experience in education and information. And I'm really just grateful that you have taken the time to meet with me today and share some of what you've learned. So welcome to the show, Norman. Well, thank you, Jason. It's my pleasure to be here. When I think about someone like yourself that comes from a business background, that comes from a, well, comes from the background. Actually, I'd like to invite you to share with the listeners about where you come from and what brought you into the world of building sustainable communities. Why, how did that become important to you? Yeah, so... Um... I was a dentist for 35 years. I, I practiced clinical dentistry for 35 years. Uh, I guess, you know, very conventional, you know, had a house and a family and a wife and two kids and, uh, you know, very typical, you know, graduated from dental school in 1970, set up my practice and, you know, was, was going along. And uh, I had two uh, children who weren't conventional. You know, so I was faced with a, I was faced with a challenge. You know, if my son would have come into my dental practice, I definitely wouldn't be sitting here today. So it wasn't like I brought them along; they brought me along. And uh, you know, I think if you have, uh, you know, conventional children, as I say, I, I, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I had, you know, two relatively unconventional children, or two very unconventional children. And uh, you know, you're faced with that choice as a parent: you you either uh, join them or you lose them. And uh, I love them both so much that uh, I bought in and, 
they took me along for this wild and crazy ride. And um, the truth is, very early on in the relationship, I sort of knew that they were right and I was crazy. You know, uh, so it's been a wonderful journey. I've learned a lot. I've met so many wonderful people, learned a lot of lessons along the way. Yeah. So it all started in 1995 when my son, Stephen, was a senior at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, he uh, had a girlfriend who was doing a semester abroad in Costa Rica. And on his spring break, he asked if he could come to Costa Rica to see her. And I said, OK. I said, you know, but your mom and I have never been to Costa Rica. So we're going to come along with you, you know, and stay for the first few days of your vacation. <laughs> and, you know, we'll, we'll go see the sites, you know. And uh, and we did. This was in March of 1995. So, you know, almost 26 years ago, a little more than 26 years ago. And uh, we had an amazing time. I can tell you that both of us, Stephen and I, both had our aha moments on that trip, completely different. They revolved around different scenarios. One was, you know, in the central highlands of Costa Rica, and one was basically on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. Yeah, and it was, you know, life-changing, you know, for both of us in many ways. We didn't realize it when we were first there, but, uh, yeah, certainly played a, had a big influence in our lives going forward from there. So uh, Stephen's uh, life-changing experience, his aha moment, is he saw a, a playground full of indigenous children sprayed by a Chiquita banana crop duster. And uh, as he explains it, he pulled the emergency brake on his life and, uh, you know, started to question him. And not that he had any answers. I mean, he grew up in suburbia in Miami, you know, so it wasn't like we had any of the answers. And all, all the, the questions, we, we definitely weren't asking at that time, you know. But it really had a profound effect on him. It really, you know, changed him in many ways. Uh, he wanted to drop out of school right then and there. He had six weeks until he graduated college and wanted to give it up. And he, he wanted to come to Costa Rica and change the world. And uh, we convinced him to come home and finish, and he graduated. Uh, that was in you know, June of 1995. That summer, he went on Grateful Dead tour. And in August or September, Jerry Garcia died. He had to go, had to go do something with his life. And he said, I, I want to go do it in Costa Rica. And I said, uh, OK, well, if that's what you want to do, uh, you know, I'll support that, you know, as long as you do it in an honest and, uh, manner and you give back as much as you take out and, uh, you know, be the wonderful guy that you are, and yeah, go, you know, go to Costa Rica and see what it's going to be. So he, you know, went down to Costa Rica to the Caribbean side because that's what he knew. That's where he had his aha moment, and in many respects, was very similar to Miami, where he grew up. You know, there was a Caribbean Sea, and you know, we were fishermen, and we had gone to the Bahamas, you know, many, many, many times during his youth. He really thought he was half Bahamian, grew up on the water, and had a Rasta culture. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, you know, comfortable. The Caribbean side was really comfortable, really undeveloped in 1995. The road to get there, you know, when you, when you left, you had to go to a chiropractor, you know, it was terrible. <laughs> but, uh, and there was one phone, there was one phone in, in Puerto mm -hmm. Viejo, you know, it was really remote. Uh, this was in 1995. They didn't even have a road till 1982 and they didn't have electricity till the late eighties. So he went there not knowing what he was going to do, you know, whether maybe he would open a small restaurant or he would open up a small bed and breakfast or a cabina. And uh, after there, you know, several weeks and, you know, we would talk as often as we could on this one phone. He says, Dad, I got it. He says, I, I want to go into the student travel business and I want to bring high school and college students to Costa Rica. And I not only want to show them the beauties and wonders, because anybody could do that, he says, you know, I really want to show them the reality. I want to show them the destruction of the rainforest. And I want to show them the decimation of these uh, indigenous people, you know, because of this giant agrochemical agriculture that was going on, the banana plantations, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what happened. And uh, I said, OK, it sounds great. You know, he, I said to him, you know, you're 20 years old, you have really long dreadlocks, you know, I don't know if a lot of mothers are sending their 17-year-old daughters with you, you know, to Costa Rica, but, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take a stab at this. So, you know, had some gray hair still then, you know, even 27 years ago, and I said, yeah, okay, let's do it. You know, I'll be a dentist by day and a Costa Rican tour guide by night, and um, let's see. So we came back to Miami in September, maybe the end of September, and we sort of mapped out a plan, an itinerary, you know, what we would, you know, try to have as part of our itinerary and part of what we would, you know, go to a school and present. And then in uh, Thanksgiving weekend of 1995, I flew down there. I even flew his girlfriend back from Wisconsin to come with us. 
So we, uh, you know, we got there and uh, had this itinerary. We were there for four days. Uh, when they put me on the plane on Sunday, they thought I was I was a dead man. I, I'd done three rainforest hikes every day in three different rainforests and gone river rafting. And we did a night hike in the rainforest. And yeah, we came up with an amazing, you know, what we thought was an amazing itinerary. And, you know, so he came back and then we went and we had, a, you know, some contact into the school that he had gone to and I had a friend who was on the board of directors of this private school here in Miami, and we went out and we sold our first trip, 19 students, and we brought our first trip in 1996 to Costa Rica. And one of the things that was on the itinerary that we wanted to do was a day of sustainable living where we could hike through the rainforest, pitch our tents on the beach, maybe eat a banana, catch a fish, and leave the next day. And when we were there over this Thanksgiving weekend, one of the, the guides that were showing us the area said, I have a great place. And he took us by boat and we landed at Punta Mona. And uh, that was our first experience. You know, it was, uh, we walked up and there was a Afro-Caribbean man. His name was Patty. He was the only inhabitant of Punta Mona, you know, that was left. At one time, it was an Afro-Caribbean village. And as the road came and as Manzanillo and Puerto Viejo got more developed, they left and because uh, it was off the grid. You couldn't get there. You either walked in for two hours or went by boat for 25 minutes. So we landed there and Patty was picking pigeon peas, gandules. And uh, we walked up to him and he didn't even acknowledge us until we got within five feet of him. You know, and We started talking to him and Stephen in his very excited way, he says, Patty, he said, we'd love to bring groups here. and We would like to, you know. Maybe you could fish for us and we could pitch our tents on your beach. And, you know, maybe we could eat some of your bananas, he says. And, and Patty, of, of course, will pay you. And Patty called Stephen boy. To the day he died, he called Stephen boy. He called me dad. <laughs> and he said, he, you know, and this has got to remember, this is our first introduction to Punta Mona. We're not there 10 minutes, right? And Patty looks at Stephen and he says, boy, he says, if you give me money, there are people who come and kill me for my money. They'll never kill me for my friends pretty powerful. Our introduction to this wilderness, really, you know, I mean, Patty was, you know, getting his drinking water by collecting it in 50 gallon drums. And of course, he had an outhouse and, you know, his, his lighting were, were, was kerosene lanterns. So it was really, you know, it was really out there. It was, you know, it was the jungle, for, you know, for sure. And uh, he said, yeah, bring me a group. So in March of the following year, or April of the following, 1996, we brought 19 students, and it was magical. It was really just a magical experience. And uh, Stephen was great at it. So when you guys went there and met Patty, were you already looking to buy land? Is that what brought you there? You were looking in someone? No, no. We, were looking, we were looking somewhere to bring students for one day that was... You're just going to rent it and... Yeah, we could walk through the rainforest and we could pitch our tents on the beach. You know, that, that's mm -hmm. where we, we were looking for one day of the destination of what our itinerary said we think would be a great ecological learning experience for, you know, upper middle class kids coming from Miami. You know, that's really how it started. And, um, you know, we brought this group there and it was amazing. And, you know, I was still practicing dentistry full time. And uh, Stephen and I would go to all these conventions. We would go to the, uh, you know, the science teachers convention, the sustainable education convention. You know, when we came and did our first trip, we brought a video crew with us and we made a video of the trip. So we had really good documentation. You know, we went out and, you know, had someone do a nice brochures for us. And we started to sell trips. In 1997, we sold 11 trips. And in 1997, my daughter finished her graduate program, and she came to Costa Rica to be with her brother and to, to run this business called Costa Rican Adventures. That was the name of our company. Yeah, so we did 11 trips in 96, and then there are 97, and then in 98, we did 40 trips. And yeah, we, it was just, we were the only ones doing student travel to Costa Rica. You know, and we lured them in there. You know, we lured them by the beauties and wonders of Costa Rica. You know, we took them all over the country. But our real purpose was to educate them, you know, and to start to build this bridge between the alternative world or, you know, for just lack of a better term, we'll, we'll call it the alternative world. My, my brother calls it the alien world. But, uh, you know. <laughs> We, you know, we were looking, you know, to learn and do things different. And, you know, by the end of the second or third year, we still didn't have any answers, but at least we knew what questions to ask, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, we were, you know, taking in income and we reinvested it all in Punta Mono. We built all these buildings out of fallen trees. And, yeah, we started to do things right. You know, Punta Mono started to become just magical, started to plant food. 
you know, when, when Stephen got there and lived with Patty in between the trips, he would eat the same thing every day. You know, he would eat bananas and he would eat yucca. And, you know, every now and then Patty would catch a fish. And, and that was it. You know, and then one of our friends came, Silvio, and he brought him this stick, you know, and it was katuk. You know, and all of a sudden Stephen had unlimited greens. And he started thinking, my God, this plant changed my life. You know, how many more plants are there out there that can change other people's lives, you know? And so he became sort of an ethnobotanist. He was really interested in the relationship between, you know, humans and, and, and plants and where your food came from and, you know, what that looked like, you know, for food and for medicine and for clothing and for housing, you know, and, and to all that thing. And then in 1999, he uh, went and he took his first permaculture course in Hawaii. And I guess that was another, you know, that was another change, you know, a big changing point. You know, because now we sort of understood permaculture, you know, and what that looked like and how we would now base Punta Mona on permaculture principles and, you know, how we would really, our whole philosophy would change, you know, to coincide with permaculture ethics. And uh, that was a big change. And then in, in 2001, we started hosting our first permaculture groups. You know, we taught three permaculture courses every year and it just evolved. You know, and, you know, I, I don't want to say it was all Stephen because Lisa, my daughter, she, you know, played a big part. She was she was much more organized than he was. You know, so she sort of, you know, ran the business of the business. And, uh, yeah, and I was still active. You know, I, you know, I was in one place. They were traveling. You got to remember in those days, you know, it was before WhatsApp, you know. So it was a miracle, you know, when a group came out of the jungle. If a bus showed up, that was a miracle. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was a different world. Yeah. So then, you know, we, we started doing these groups and Punta Gota got more and more popular. We, you know, started building more buildings. We built a big common building that we could house people in. We built a big communal kitchen, which is still, you know, really the center of the community. And, you know, we started building cabins, all sustainable, all from fallen wood. You know, we were learning, you know, as we were going. And we were making these relationships because we had a town that was in walking distance, us called Gandoka. And, you know, all of our you know, employees that weren't volunteers or our real employees that worked every day came from Gandoka and we built that relationship there. And, you know, we watched these kids grow up, you know, and, you know, some of the workers have been with us for over 20 years, you know, and they're still, you know, and they're not workers, you know, they're, they're part of our family. So, you know, while we were also questioning, you know, how we could live, you know, in those days it was sustainable. We've now, you know, certainly have, you know, moved more into the realm of regenerative. But, you know, in those days and, you know, early 2000, God, if you were sustainable, you were, you know, you were really ahead of the game. And it wasn't only sustainability as far as, you know, where we were going to grow our food and how we were going to build our buildings. But, you know, what was the sustainable relationship between us and our, you know, and our workers? You know, what did that look like? And, you know, how could we make that relationship work? And uh, how do we make them really not workers, but part of our family? And how do we bring them in? And how do we make decisions, you know, together? Well, can we go there a little bit? Do you have you have any examples of uh, what you've done to be able to, you know, really bring that in beyond and long-term employment relationship? Yeah. Like, what have you done to really instill that? Yeah, I think we have, you know, I mean, there's, you know, daily meetings between, you know, the person who was running it certainly at the beginning was Stephen. And, you know, now he's not there quite as much, you know, so now we have an amazing farm manager, you know, general manager, we have amazing farm manager, we have amazing volunteer manager. Yeah, so they meet every single day. And these are all people from the neighboring Pueblo? No, those are not local Costa Ricans. But okay. the neighbors from the local, you know, they come and they, there are builders, you know, there are agricultural workers, you know, they have real experience, you know, they can read the land, they can read the weather, they can read the moon, you know, so when mm -hmm. we want to plant beans, you know, we depend on them to teach us how to do that. And, you know, and it's been a long term relationship. It's been really steady employment, you know, and we've always paid fair wages. You know, we paid more, certainly more than the banana plantations. You know, that was our competition. You went and you worked in the banana plantation, or you could come and work in Puta Mona. So, um, yeah, so we were interested in that right from the beginning. You know, we were interested in that in that human relationship. But it was also isolated. You know, we were, you know, our workers that came to us every day came by. I, I you know, like to tell all my friends here in Miami, well, how many of your workers come on horseback? You know, so, yeah, so we were, you know, we were isolated between the community of Gandoka and the community of Manzanillo. And, you mm -hmm. know, we always tried to have really, really, really good relationships with them. What are some things that you think other projects could do to 
kind of emulate that relationship building that you've established? You have to have really good communication, you know, and it has to be an important part of your ethics. You know, we can talk about ethics, you know, going on because everything has to be heart driven. I mean, and that has to come from the top. You know, your heart has to be in the right place. If we were coming there to exploit and extract every dollar out of out of the Punta Mona business, it wouldn't have worked for all these years. You know, you, you always have to give back and you have to continually give back and you have to continually listen, you know, you know, because circumstances change and times change, and, you know, people change, you know. I mean, I could tell you that we've had thousands of people, thousands of people come through Punta Mona. But the feeling has never changed. The feeling has always been the same, you know, because it was rooted, in, you know, in good stuff. You know, we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to do good. You know, that was our, our core value. We wanted to, you know, and, and basically involve, the, you know, the local community. So, you know, all those were good things. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, maybe further on when we get to community building, when we build real communities, you know. So Punta was never really, you know, a residential community. It was off the grid. It was hard to get to. It's on the beach, it dealt with a, a younger population. It, it wasn't a permanent population, you know. Now we have the most stability that we ever had. You know, we have people that have been there three and four years, you know, uh, as our permanent staff. Not the Gandopans. They've been there for 20. That, that's been a constant. They, they, they've been there forever. But, yeah, it was a transit community. But the feeling was always the same. And then in 2004, we also went in the organic food business. Our farm manager, her dad, was president of Whole Foods in Southern California and came and said, you know, bring us a great product with a great story or we'll put you into Whole Foods nationally. You know, so I like to say here we were, we had another partner. I like to say here we had these uh, two hippies and a dentist went in the organic food business. And yeah, we were national in Whole Foods. You know, we did that for, you know, 10 or 11 years in addition to running Punta Mona. And then in 2004, I was getting ready to retire. You know, I, I could no longer practice dentistry. My eyes sort of went. Uh, it was okay to, you know, to be a Costa Rican tour guide, but it wasn't okay to, like, drill in people's mouths. So, you know, I was looking to retire. And uh, Stephen kind of knew that I couldn't live in Punta Mona. And I kept saying, well, Stephen, it's off the grid. If I run out of toilet paper, I have to get on a boat to go get it. You know, it's, you know that, that doesn't work for your brother and I. So he said, okay, so let's, let's build a community. And I said, uh, okay, let's see what that looks like. And uh, we did. You know, I went out and I raised some money and uh, Stephen had a really specific set of criteria. You know, he knew exactly what he was looking for. He was living in the middle of the jungle and he knew his next community wanted to be within an hour of an airport and an hour of San Jose. So that was, a, you know, two of the criteria. You know, he knew he wanted to be an hour from the beach. He knew that he wanted to be between 400 and 600 meters, 700 meters above sea level so he could grow all these amazing fruits that he's so passionate about. He knew that he wouldn't build anything that was already forested. He wanted to take denuded land so he could reforest it. You know, when you hear the developers are coming, you immediately, your mindset is, oh, here come the developers that are going to destroy everything. Well, what if the developers could come in and restore everything? you know, regenerate the land. So that was a, another criteria. And then, you know, it was his dream. You know, he wanted a swimmable, drinkable river, you know, where he could lie on a rock and get toasty and then, you know, sort of fall off the rock into a river that he could drink from. It was his dream. You know, he could plan it any way you want. You know, I know that we took the permaculture course together, you know, so you you know that's, you know, one of the principles, you know, you, you know and, and you know that the more specific that you are with your criteria, the easier those things are to find, you know. So it's an hour from San Jose. So you drew an hour, a big circle around an hour from San Jose, you know, an hour from the airport, you know, so it had to be a little bit more north. It had to be an hour from the beach. So that took away the eastern suburbs of San Jose. Yeah, you had to go west toward towards the Pacific, you know, uh, swimmable, drinkable river. There were only two rivers that met that criteria that fell within that river, you know. So he went exploring, you know, and, and, and we found land, you know, that turned out to be the Machuca Valley. And uh, we started to build a community. Do we know how to build a community? No, you know. But we did it, you know, and then we uh, learned a lot. You know, I, I kept saying the whole time, I said, God, going to Harvard's expensive, you know, because, you know, we, we, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes. And so it was a real it was a real learning experience, you know, for sure. And then we ran into 2008. It wasn't a good time to be a real estate developer in, in 2008 when when the world was ready, you know, was ready to explode. 
But because of our business model, we didn't have any debt. We raised enough money to buy the land and to develop enough of it that we could sell it and then use deposits and things like that to complete the infrastructure. So the model really was to our advantage. And you know, I'm pretty confident in saying that we were the only project that was started pre-2008 that was completed in Costa Rica you know, during that time period. And that was because the banks didn't own us. You know, they couldn't take back the property because, you know, we own the property. So that worked. And as I say, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes. You know, we didn't have the right person to come and develop with us. You know, can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I can. You know, as I said, I was a dentist and I had a patient who, you know, was sitting in my chair one day. She says, God, we're going to go next week to Costa Rica. What should we do? I said, well, you know, how long are you going for? They said, you know, four days. I said, well, go to the Caribbean. You know, I'll arrange you can hike out to Punta Mona and meet Stephen. And they did. And they were so blown away that the husband, who I had never met, he wasn't my patient, but uh, they came, you know, they were there, there, I think, from Thursday to Sunday. They came back. Monday, he called me. He said, I want to be your partner. I want to go develop with you. And within, you know, five days, we were on a plane going back to Costa Rica. He was a very nice guy. He wasn't the one, you know. He worked for a big development company, a public company, but, you know, he had 300 people working for him. You know, he was he was never in a backhoe, you know. He, he was never an on-the-ground developer. Yeah, so that, you know, cost us a lot of time, effort, a lot of money. And then in 2010, I, I found the right partner and you know, he was this you know young Argentinian man that you know came to Punta Mona. We knew him already for 15 years. And he came and you know he pulled it off. He really you know developed it, and we finished it in 2010, and uh, was sold out by 2013. Can I just stop you a second? With this other developer that you found, do you have any advice in vetting developers at this point to be yeah. able to minimize mistakes and yeah. uh, find yeah. a yeah. better ally along those lines? What would you recommend? Yeah, that I think that they have to have really, you know, experience building in Latin America. You know, mm -hmm. not necessarily building in Costa Rica, but, you know, having Latin American experience, you know, building and, you know, in that climate building, um, you know, with, with the mentality of, you know, sort of the manana mentality, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I think that that's really, really, really important. Understanding the culture is really important for that kind of role. The culture of building. Yeah, for sure. And they have to be good managers because, you know, they're not going to do the building. You know, they're going to go out and they're going to hire, you know, a Costa Rican company that's going to build the roads. And, you know, they're going to hire a Costa Rican electrical contractor that's going to come in. So they, they have to have really good people skills and be very organized. And, you know, and have had, a, you know, had experience doing it, you know, for sure. So, uh, you know, I'll just touch on Ecovia. It was, you know, 45 acres. There was 43 lots. 23, we sold to 23 countries. We had the largest biomass digester in Central America, which was completely over-engineered. I could have run a 20,000-head pig farm with it. You know, the, no, the it's impressive. I remember Stephen showing it to us in the, yeah, in the course. Yeah, it's impressive. Yeah, it's, it's enormous. You know, I, I, so you know, when we did Allegria, we didn't do it because I, I, I can tell you that, can't tell you a thousand percent, but I, I think maybe the pyramids were harder to build than, than our biomass <laughs> digester. Maybe. I'm not, I'm not even a hundred percent convinced of that. You know, you know, for 18 months, we were dynamiting every day. You know, to put in electric, you only have to go 18 inches. To put in septic, you have to go four feet. You know, when you're going through four feet of rock, it's really, really hard. Yeah, so that was, yeah, but it was. I mean, we had recycled plastic roads. You know, wouldn't use those again either. You know, they might be great once the community was built, but they didn't hold up great to big, heavy trucks coming in to, mm. to do heavy construction, you know. Okay. Yeah. And now there's good alternatives. You got to remember now we're 12, 13 years later. So I don't have to put in a community septic system because there's such great alternatives for individual septic systems that are, you know, you know, very environmental friendly and work really, really well, you know. You can have your own biomass digester. You don't need to, to destroy the land to be able to do it. You know, the Costa Rica was approved for BioNest, which is a you know a thousand percent better than septic tank. You know, basically the same bio beginning comp BioNest. Yeah, so a company that you know that was approved in Costa Rica, and uh, yeah, Ecovia was lovely. You know, I, I keep saying I can't tell you it's the most beautiful community in the world, but I could tell you it's in the top five. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it turned into, you know, just a really wonderful community that, you know, was really centered around education because we put the school in on the property. That was one of our goals. We as developers gave land 
you know, to build a school. And within a year, it wasn't big enough. We just didn't have enough land, you know. So they moved it and turned into what the, the school Casa Sula. And it's, you know, an amazing example of uh, non-education education. And it's thriving, you know, it has uh, its own well, its own water, you know. Yeah. Is there an uh, some kind of like online website that somebody could go to and find out what they're doing? Yeah, it's, it's laecovia.com. And the school can be found through there. That's called Casa Sula. Yeah. Okay. Casa Sula, S-U-L-A. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll include that in the show notes for people interested. Yeah. So, you know, and we always knew we wanted to do it again. You know, it really was a pleasant experience. We thought we really, you know, made a difference. You know, uh, it became so sustainable. You know, there was now 43 families living there. So, you know, it paid, you know, that someone who was selling organic eggs and we weren't raising our own chickens, you know. If I could, you know, if Jason could call Maria, who lived, you know, 10 minutes away and say, Maria, you know, I need six dozen eggs today. You know, it paid her because Jason called her and Norman called her and Stephen called her. And, you know, and, you know, so she became the organic egg provider for La Ecovia. And, you know, and we wanted to have fish. You know, we called Jose and he had seven fishermen that, you know, that, that he worked with, you know, an hour away. And on Friday he would come and he would deliver fish. And, you know, there were enough people. To, if you wanted organic almond milk, you could get that. So that was, you know, really a good model, you know, and it's worked really well. I mean, during COVID, it was amazing, you know, that people never really, never really left. You know, they, they, they basically had everything they needed there. But we made a lot of mistakes, you know, for sure. We, we made a lot of mistakes. So um, when we decided to do it again, you know, we sat down. I mean, generally the way it works is, uh, and, you know, and our other partner that came in and saved us, he did a great job. He did a great job at the development side. And then we decided to do it again. We sat down and we wanted to figure out what we did wrong, you know, so we could correct those. And the biggest thing that we did wrong is we just didn't have the right team in place, you know. And when I said the right team in place, we had wonderful people, but basically all of our skill sets were the same. You know, mm -hmm. Stephen's skill set is, you know, pretty similar to my skill set. You know, we're, you know, generally really good communicators. We're enthusiastic. We can bring about excitement, but... Uh, that's it. I mean, Stephen's, you know, really great with permaculture. He's really great as, you know, he, he knows how to plant amazing gardens. You know, you wouldn't want him negotiating a contract. You know, and in fact, I often think that if he had to do that, I'd have to give him Adderall. You know, <laughs> not his skill set. So, the, yeah, so the, if nothing comes out of this and anybody wants to do it, it's really hard to do. You know, the build community is really hard. But if you wanted to do it, the number one piece of advice I would give anybody trying to do it is spend a lot of time selecting your team. And along those lines, when you select that team, it has to come from the heart. Every member of that team needs to come from the same heart place, you know, because if that differs, you know, if that differs, then all the goals that you set for yourself will always be contentious, you know. So, for example, at Alegria, we were determined to have 20 percent Costa Ricans, you know, it's easy to say 20% Costa Rica, because I would doubt... On the residential that. roster or on the... On the residential roster, on the residential side. So I would venture to say that, you know, all of these residential communities, they don't have one Costa Rican, you know, much less 20%. You know, things that you have to do to do that, you know, that was our heart. That was very, very, very important to us. Diversity was really, really important to us. And diversity in all aspects, you know, diversity in age, diversity in race, diversity in the number of countries we would attract, uh, diversity in all socioeconomic levels, you know. So that was really important. So in selecting your team, you really need, you know, to be all heartfelt because these are big issues. These are really big core issues. But then on a practical level, you know, I know I wanted to have beautiful brochures and beautiful videos and beautiful presentations, you know, when I was going out to, again, to raise money, you know, I had a really attractive investor package, you know, so to have a really good marketer on my team was really important, you know, mm -hmm. to have someone that could do contracts and the legal aspects of it was really important, you know, to have an Excel wizard was really important, you know. Okay. So you're talking about building your team. The core team that is now going to be the developers. Right, right. That's where I was going to go. So yeah. you're talking about your development team, not necessarily your residential team. My development team, which also includes a developer, you uh -huh. know, is part of part of the core team. Now, I'm not going out and hire a developer. Our model was to have that core team all as equity partners as part of the development team. 
Okay, so tell me more about this strategy. So you're gathering your development team based on needed skills, but you're also tying that into an anticipation that some large percentage of these people are going to become residential members because you're, as well as paying them, you're offering them equity into the project or tell me a little bit more about how that yeah, works. So, yeah. So, cause if I can to just finish the, the, where I'm coming from is that you've got these, you're talking about bringing in diversity and yeah. with diversity, there might be uh income diversity within that and value diversity. Now we're talking about the residents We're now we're just talking about the development team that's going to develop it and the business structure behind it. You know, so our okay. business structure was, Basically, we took an investment, and those were the limited partners. Those were the okay. limited partners, right? Okay. We were the general partners. It was a United okay. States company that we raised the money in. So that's a limited partnership. And in order to have a limited partnership, you also have a, to have a general partner as part of the limited partnership, which is our development team. So there's seven okay. of us who all have equity within that 30%. Okay. The limited partners own 70%. The General partner owns thirty percent of the development entity. Okay, so you're we're talking about Alegria, and so we're talking about we have investment partners that are limited by, and when you say limited, they don't have no control over the day to day operation. Right, but they own seventy percent of the assets of the asset. quantity. Exactly, and then thirty percent of the asset quantity at that point was owned by the developer team. Exactly. And so you put your team together, you make a bunch of great decisions, and then people start executing and you're building the infrastructure. Exactly. Then you're at some point starting to invite in. Well, let's backtrack a little bit. So part of this core value, part of this core value really determines, you know, what type of community you want. So basically in Costa Rica, there's two ways to build community. You can build what's called an agricultural community. And that's just a legal term, agricultural community. And basically it says anything along a public road, you can do anything you want. So if you have a public road, if you want a thousand square meter lot, a hundred square meter lot, a 10,000 square meter, you can do whatever you want on a public road. But once you go internally into the community, then every lot has to be 5,000 square meters because it was meant to be for farms. You know, it was a farming entity. Okay. Minimum of 5,000 square Minimum meters. Minimum of 5,000 uh-huh. square meters. Yeah. So those are very big lots. So basically what you wind up with is a very, you know, monoculture rich community because every lot is 5,000 square meters. Every lot's expensive, you know, so there's no diversity. The good part is that they're easy to do. You know, they're not expensive. There's not a lot of regulation. And most Costa Rican communities, that's the way they're built. You know, they're built as agricultural communities. And these type of communities are basically, you know, monocultured you know, rich communities. Mm-hmm. But when you say monocultured, you're not talking about planting monocultured no, plants. No, no, we're not even talking about that. You know, mm-hmm. if you look at the residential retirement communities in Costa Rica, right? You know, they don't even know what permaculture is, much less. I don't even know if they know what monoculture So by is, monoculture, right? you're talking about each lot is kind of homogenized in its shape and characteristics. Yeah, and I'm talking about the person who lives there is homogenized, you know? Okay. Yeah, because of, of of the cost of the lot, you know. Right? Uh huh. So you're you're taking people by my monitor. You're talking about people coming from a more conventional mindset. Exactly. Okay. So that was never an option for us because one of our core values was diversity. So the second way to do community in Costa Rica is called filial condominium, horizontal filial condominium, and. You know, our concept of condominium, you know, let's bypass that for a minute. Condominium in Costa Rica is just a legal term, okay? So what that basically says, along a public road, again, you want 100, 500,000 square meters, doesn't matter. You know anything on a public road. But when you go internally, if you'll adhere to all the condominium rules of Costa Rica, as far as water, as far as waste, as far as the number of fire hydrants, as far as the size of the roads, as far as setting up your homeowners association, those are all governed by Costa Rican law, you know, then you can master plan the community. So you could have a 10,000 square foot lot next to a 60,000 square foot lot. You could have a $50,000 lot next to a $350,000 lot. You know, that's what brings in diversity. The negative part takes a really long time to do, you know, especially, you know, for us, it was during COVID. So 
you know, it wasn't like all of these permitting people were sitting in one place working. You know, they're spread out in their homes all over the country. So it wasn't like you could go visit them and say what's happening. So the permitting is much, much harder. It's much, much stricter. It takes a really long time. It's really expensive. You know, you have to have attorneys that do this for you. Whenever you have to cross all your T's and dot all your I's, you know, you need engineering. And, you know, if you're going to present to Manai and to Satana and you're going to present to Salud and to, the, you know, the Minister of Water, you know, there's a way to follow it. But what you get in return is you get a diversified community. Because the lots don't have a minimum or the minimum well, is much smaller? They don't have a minimum. You can make them anything you want, you mm-hmm. know, so you can have a diversity of pricing. Okay, and by having this diversity of pricing, you bring in a more diverse community. And that's what happened. So I could tell you at Alegria, there were 145 lots. We have upwards of 135 sold. I I think we're close to about 140. We have very few lots left. We have 37 countries represented. We have 20% Costa Rican. I think there's two Costa Rican lots left, which is our proudest achievement. That was really, really hard to do. Yeah, we have, you know, from mid-20s to, you know, my age, or, you know, mid-70s. What's the smallest lot that you've sold? Mm, I think around 8,000 square feet, about 80 square meters. 80 square meters. Okay. So that's just a little residential house yeah, site. residential house. Type. Yeah. yeah. And then mm-hmm. the largest, you know, a little under two acres. Yeah. So, it, it, a so very... what have you done to attract this Costa Rican population into your community? What would you figure out there? Well, we had a put lots that, you know, were comparable by Costa Rican standards. So, you know, we structure our pricing, you know, based that we would keep these Costa Rican lots at such a price and we would never waver. You know, we would never raise the prices. This was it. We were going to sell 31 lots to Costa Ricans, you know, and these were the prices. And that was that was non-negotiable. That was a non-negotiable ask. But that came from the heart. You know, by the end, I could have taken these lots and I could have sold them for three times the amount. Non-negotiable. I see. These were for Costa Ricans, you know, and we were very, very, very determined. And it was hard because even the price of the lots were less, still most of the Costa Ricans, you know, a lot of the Costa Ricans needed financing, you know, and they couldn't get financing until I was permitted. So, you know, it was was this chicken and the egg game. But, you know, but we Mm -hmm. were very flexible, you know, and, you know, they could put a small down payment and they could, you know, reserve the lots. And 90% of the down payment was refundable. We made it as easy and as amenable and as and as friendly and as family oriented as we could because we were determined you know whatever long it took us we were gonna you know have 20 percent costa rica okay and what attracted people is it wasn't monoculture it was permaculture you know so one of the things that we were offering is we were offering amazing organic gardens you know you go to community sometimes there's a tennis court and sometimes there's a golf course and there's a clubhouse the first thing we built was a garden and a greenhouse you know, and a yoga deck. So our intention was, you know, from the beginning was to have 200 varieties of tropical fruit and have fruit trees and, and food forests line our, our public roads where you could walk down and you could eat to your heart's content. And part of the homeowners association dues would go that every week you would get delivered to your door, you know, a basket of organic vegetables and a basket of organic fruit that was part of your homeowners dues. And, you know, we were going to have the purest water that we could have. You know, 99.6 or 99.7% pure right out of the ground. 300-foot wells, you know, deep wells. And uh, we didn't attract that monoculture. It was a very distinct genre that we attracted, you know. When we would talk to these, you know, many of our neighbors, they would say, well, do you want to know about us? And we said, we know about you. You're here. You know, you wouldn't have gone through all the process to get to talk to us one-on-one. You know, you know, Stephen did the show with, with Zach Efron, and, you know, so we— it was a process. So we had, we held weekly webinars and, you know, then we allowed people from the weekly webinars to come on one-on-one calls and, you know, and we knew, we knew whoever we talked to is that we were starting off with a shared common value. That's really important, you know, because why do you live where you live? Some people move to a neighborhood for religious purposes, or some people move for educational purposes. You know, you can, you know, you want to put your kid in the school, you know, some people follow a guru, you know, and they'll go to the middle of nowhere. But the truth is, most people live where they live is because they can afford to live there. You know, they have a set of criteria. They want a lawn. They want a backyard. They want three bedrooms, whatever it is, right? You call up a realtor and, you know, they come and pick you up on Sunday in their SUV, usually a black one, right? And they'll take you to see seven or eight properties and you'll buy one. You have no idea who lives next door. You have no idea who lives across the street. 
You have no idea that your kid can walk out of their front door safely and in three minutes be at their best friend's house. You know, that's what we were offering. You know, we weren't selling lots. We were selling community. We were, we were not selling. We were inviting people to become members of our family. And that's how we approached it, you know, and, and that's the feeling. You know, that's the feeling. You know, I keep saying that we have the ability to envision the spectacular, and that's how we've set it up. So that was a big difference. You know, that, the team was really a big lesson learned. You know, we treat a lot of things within the Homeowners Association document. You know, there were certain things that are Costa Rican law that I have no control over. You know, I can't control setbacks, and I can't control how the voting goes in the Homeowners Association. That's Costa Rican law. But anything that we had control over, we wrote in such a manner that we as the developers wouldn't make those decisions. You know, when people want to talk about pets, which is the number one discussed item in a homeowner, in a community, you know, our position was no lions, tigers, elephants, or giraffes. And then whatever's left, let the homeowners figure it out. You know, so we thought that would be the, an amazing process, and it was. And then what happened that was different than Ecovia, Ecovia took us 11 months to permit and three years to sell. This took us over three years to permit and like 14 months to sell three times as many lots, you know? So we had all these neighbors and we couldn't give them the lots yet because we weren't completely permanent, right? So my partner, Kara, thought that, my God, uh, let's start a WhatsApp group, you know? We'll get to know our neighbors, you know? And, you know, I thought, well, great, you know, I'll show them my really beautiful grandchildren and they'll send me pictures of their puppies. And, you know, and that's how it would work. But it didn't turn out that way. So these WhatsApp groups developed into working groups. So we have a regeneration group, and we have a sustainable building group, a regenerative building group. We have a communications group. We have a conscious parenting group talking about education and what that looks like. You know, so we have seven WhatsApp groups that now meet regularly, and now we as the community, and I'm switching hats now because I also bought a lot there. I'm going to go move there. And... Uh, yeah, so we're in constant contact. Every two weeks we have these meetings, you know, and some attract 20, 30 people. And then within that, within that group, within that WhatsApp group, with these big meetings, we now have smaller working groups that really do the work of the committee. So the regeneration group, yeah, we wrote a beautiful document. You know, we met probably two times a week for five months, you know, and it was a labor of love. But yeah, it's community, you know, at its highest level. You know. So this is reminding me of uh, kind of a governance format that I've heard read about, and we've kind of got woven into our own documents here called sociocracy. Yeah, that's, is it, that... that's what it is. You, you can call yeah. it what you want, but that's what it is. You know, we're not so con you know. So the governance group, which I thought would be really boring, it's it's really interesting actually. Yeah. So that's what it's based on. You know, it's based on going down into groups, and uh, you know, from there having committees and then within, you know, large committees, and then the committees would break down into small committees and they would bring the work back to the board of directors. The board of directors would bring it back to the homeowners association, you know, and it, it would work back and forth, you know, that mm -hmm. way. Yeah. So yeah, it's sociocracy for sure. I mean, you know, it's called many different things, but that's, you know, basically the way it runs. Yeah. So share with us another, say, we could call it a mistake that, or that you made with Alegria that you corrected in the development of Ecovia. Yeah. Okay. Or I'm sorry, the other way around. So when I talked about Ecovia, you know, and be able to call Maria to bring organic eggs, you know, even within that framework, Ecovia was just too small. It was only 43 families. So there was no commercialization of it. You know, I couldn't have a small restaurant. I couldn't have a small grocery mm -hmm. store. I couldn't have a small apothecary. You know, I couldn't do any of those things. This is where enough people to support it. So mm. that was a lesson learned. And it was a really important lesson learned, you know, because now it, you know, can bring employment to the community, but it also can bring employment to the larger community. Uh -huh. And that's the big concern. Well, you know, and I, I'd like to talk about that, you know, a little bit as well. So the lesson learned at Ecovia just wasn't big enough. That was a really important lesson learned because we wanted to do all of these other things as well. Uh-huh. And so having more lots available, building a larger community, I'm sure that helps on both sides. It provides a greater diversity of products and services available for the community to take advantage of, but then it has enough buying power within the collective to have those providers actually be able to meet their needs and be worth setting up an industry of some scale. Exactly. And 
you know, we think that, uh, you know, as I said, we were in the organic food business. You know, we, we actually did or, organic dried fruit. So, I, you know, I, I do know about, yeah, I, I, I would imagine I'm going to have 200 mango trees at, at Alegria. So why wouldn't I go into the organic dried fruit business, you know, within the community as a community endeavor to do that? So, so um, you got a few people in the community who are all about harvesting mangoes, processing mangoes, preparing them, everything. And there's a bunch of people there that just don't want to be doing that, but they love dry mangoes. Exactly. So you got a few people yeah. who are yeah. like, I live here. I need to make some money. Everyone else is like, you know what? Prepare me some mangoes and you got yourself a customer. Yeah. So that's what I would have said too. You know, that would have been, you know, my concept, you know, we're going to have this restaurant, we'll rent it out, someone will pay us money, you know, that money will go to the homeowners association, the homeowners association dues will be less, you know, but can we rethink that, you know, does that have to be the model, you know, that's the okay. conventional model, that's the model we grew up with, is it the right model, you know, so we think that we're evolved enough, we're evolving enough as a community, at least we can ask the question, I mean, I can't tell you that it's not going to be that, but I mm -hmm. can tell you that it doesn't have to be that. You know, now we okay. can take that to the next level. You know, what does okay. that really look like? How does that really become fair where the community wins, the, the community of San Mateo wins, the, you know, the, the community of Orantino, you know, or, or Tino wins, you know, what does that look like? You know, do we have to do business as usual? Does it have to be conventional business as we know it and as we grew up with it and as, as we envisioned it? Or now can uh -huh. we take it to a higher level, you know, of real regeneration? you know, that eventually the earth wins, you know. So if Stephen talked about regeneration, right, you know, if you asked him about regeneration, you know, he would probably tell you about all the fruit trees he would plant and the food forests and in the biological car. You know, you know, Stephen, I mean, he's most passionate mm -hmm. about that, you know, and he would tell you about, you know, the carbon capture, you know, and, and all those agricultural things, you know. And if you talk to me about regeneration, you know, I would talk about economic regeneration because that excites me to be able to do these things, you know, within the community. And what even excites me more and what has many of us excited is this idea of cultural regeneration. You know, what does that look like and how do we interact that? Not to say that we want to change the culture of the Machuca Valley. Of course we don't. We're not, we're not coming in as, you know, as expats to change the culture. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long you've been living in Costa Rica, you know, or if you ever lived urban, you know, and, you know, eight years ago when you went to Whole Foods to buy your food, you would never have thought of bringing your own bag to Whole Foods. You know, that wasn't part of, you know, who you were. Right. And then, you know, I can tell personally the first year, yeah, I brought it 50 percent of the time and 50 percent of the time I didn't bring it, you know. And then the second year, I brought it 100 percent of the time. But 50 percent of the time I forgot and left it in my trunk, you know, because it wasn't part of my culture. You know, I would never go to Whole Foods now without my own bag. It's ingrained in me. It's, you know, it's become who I am. During the time of COVID, this is kind of interesting story. During when, when COVID first started, we had 19 employees and we were doing all these events. You know, most of our marketing events came in-house, right? But it was COVID and I couldn't do that anymore. So I had all this food. So Kara, every Wednesday, would go and she would prepare these 19 boxes and we would deliver it to our Costa Rican workers, right? You know, the, the people who work with us, our Costa Rican family in San Mateo. You know, the only thing we didn't realize was that, you know, Costa Ricans didn't eat kale. It wasn't part of their culture, you know? First week, second week, third week, fourth week, fifth week. By the end of the sixth week, they were calling us and saying, hey, can you help us build these raised beds? We really like this kale. You know, we wanted to include it now. It's a cultural change, you know? So when you think of that and you multiply it a hundred times where your end goal is to culturally regenerate so the earth wins, it's an exciting mm -hmm. concept. So, you know. Okay, let's circle back around to this. I like this topic. So we got here because you're talking about, I was describing the conventional model of somebody taking on the enterprise of harvesting and preparing the mangoes and some other people being the consumers of those mangoes. And I imagine within your model that the producers would have to take a portion of what they're earning from their enterprise, put it back into the community, and then the community has some type of profit pool sharing or distribution yeah. of some portion of those funds that everyone benefits yeah. from. So that's a little unconventional, but you're bringing now you jumped forward through financial regeneration to cultural regeneration. I totally hear what you're saying by taking advantage of what's growing and going to go to waste and just gifting it to your, your neighbors. You've effectively taken that 
product, which wasn't maybe an insane value of raw ingredient that and and a little bit of labor to divide it. But as a result, you're now changing the mindsets of your neighbors and what kind of foods that they're being exposed to and now want to plant for themselves. Right. So that's that's where we've gotten so far. So. What else about your vision of transforming from conventional ways of doing business or product commerce would you like to move the community and maybe even the world in? Like, tell me something more. Yeah, so we, we don't have enough time for all of it, but uh, I could tell you that where we went with this one, when you, you know, the difference between this one and, and Ecovia, you know, let me talk about that for a second, because that was a big shift, mm -hmm. you know. You know, I'm not going to tell you direct numbers, but I did talk 70%, 30%. And when we did Ecovia, that's what it was. You know, we got 70% to the, you know, the limited partners, 30% to the general partner. You know, we gave the limited partners 100% of their money back, and then we split 70-30. You know, that's the way it works. So the, they get their investment back, and then it split 70-30, whatever, if there's any profit. Okay. So we did the same thing in Allegria as well. You know, 70-30, 100% back to the investor. But what was different in Allegria, also one of the things I'm most proud of, you know, and I really haven't talked about it much publicly, but uh, I guess this is a good forum because, uh, you know, your audience will appreciate it. So what we did here is we put a waterfall in. So it was 70%, 30%, but when they got to X amount of dollars of profit, X percentage of profit, their limited partnership was reduced from 70% to 52.5%. The general partners were reduced from 30% to 22.5%. And that 25% difference is now going into a fund that will go directly to the town of San Mateo as a nonprofit. That's life-changing. Okay. And so the money that's being divided in these percentages is from property sales? Yeah. It, it's the profit from the, the entity, the real estate entity, where the investor, who is now a much younger investor, a much more understanding investor, a much richer investor, because we're now... 14 years later, the world has changed. You know, what changed between now and 25 years ago, there were amazing people 25 years ago, and there were amazing ideas 25 years ago, and there was no funding 25 years ago. You know, you couldn't get anything funded. Well, that's not the truth today. You know, today, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of funding out there that will do worthwhile good projects because there's a lot of young people that made a lot of money, you know. So it's, you know, the name is the game. So my investor falls, you know, a lot of them fall into that category. So there was no problem. And for everyone that said, no, you're not going to take away 25% of my profit. For everyone that said, no, I had five that said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I want to be, I want to be associated with something like that. You know, so, yeah, we're going to give a lot of money to Sam. And it's really, really feels good. It's a really good concept. Think of it where real estate can come in and do good. You know, where developers can come in and do good because it's not all bottom line. You know, I'm not looking at take every nickel out of it. I'm, and you know, I, I do want to give back. So yeah, so I'll just share one more little piece. And then, yeah. So what about when we go into the organic dried mango business, you know, which I know, you know a lot about, and uh, that I don't only invite my Alegria neighbors in to be part of this business, but I invite my Costa Rican neighbors in as well. Not my Alegria Costa, the, the, we're talking local now. We're talking, you know, the town of San Mateo, you know, my locals who are living there, you know, and I invite them in to be part of this business and give them equity stake in this business. And then the profit, the profit from that, you know, can go to build their houses in the next allegory, you know, where they don't have to go to the bank, you know. So you're proposing a model where the regional neighbors have an opportunity to contribute work towards this enterprise and they'd be getting, I imagine, some pay as well as equity equity toward a future project exactly okay so not tomorrow you know generally what happens is Stephen. you know we'll get to the end and Stephen will say dad and I'll, I'll go like that i'll you know put my hands over my ears and we'll go dad and i'll put my hands over my ears well you know so we're out of the hands over the years stage you know so okay yeah yeah that's generally the way it works yeah he's taking okay. me down this really amazing path and I, you know i've always told him i i've always told him that you know that if his dreams weren't scaring him then he wasn't dreaming big enough oh man yeah so the next one is bigger for sure yeah, yeah. and better you know because we've learned and we have great partners now you know that, you know you know when, when you prove the model 
So I keep telling my neighbors at, you know, at Alegria that, you know, if we don't do this, if we don't envision the spectacular, shame on us, you know, because we have all the pieces in place to do this. And we're starting, as I said, from shared common value, which is, a, you know, I, I'm preaching to the choir the way I like to look at it, you know, and I'm sure this applies to all the people that are on this podcast. You know, we've all lived on the mainland, right? Now we want to go live on this island, you know, whatever the island is. You know, but to get from the mainland to the island, there's a bridge, you know, and that's where we all are. We're all on that bridge. Some of us are further, some of us are closer, you know, but the nice thing about the bridge, it's a one-way bridge. Once you get on it, you're never going back. First of all, you don't even speak that other language anymore. You have, we, you know, we have our own language. You know, I can talk to you about, you know, regeneration. I can talk to you about permaculture. Those are our words that are in the general public, mm -hmm. you know, so, uh, yeah, so it's an exciting time. Okay. I hope this was helpful. Their own category of crazy. <laughs> well, I, I, I look forward to that, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'll leave by telling you that uh, our philosophy is nothing's copyrighted. Everything is copylefted, you know, so mm. I'm, I'm happy to help in any way. I'm happy to answer any questions. Uh, we're very transparent. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to tell you the good, the bad and the ugly, you know. Right. Well, do you have any documents from any of these organizations that we could link people to in the show notes so they can see some of your kind of documentation for how you map out your agreements? Yeah, I'm happy to share them. You know, I'm happy to send you a homeowner's document. Sure. That'd be fantastic. I would love to share that with our audience. And uh, just before we sign off here, go ahead and list off a few places where people can find you online or where you'd like to direct listeners if they want to be more involved with what you're doing. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're puntamona.org. We're um, libidalegria.com and uh, ecovia.com. But, you know, EcoV is separate than Alegria, separate from Putuan. I mean, they're all, you know, they're, yeah. you know, we just happen to be the common link, but they're all, all separate entities. I mean, they're not joined together. Okay, great. Well, um, Ecovia sold out. Alegria has a few spaces left. And not many. <laughs> Punta Mona yeah. is an ongoing playground and education yeah, center. So, uh, uh, yeah, thanks again. I'll let you get to the rest of your day. And Thank I am you. so happy to be in community with you, my friend. Okay, me too, Jason. Great. Bye-bye.